Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Please open up Revelation chapter 11. I don't know why we spend so much time in chapter 11, but while I'm reading the Holy Spirit here, uh, I kind of didn't know why. But so there are, we've gone through chapter 11 mostly, uh, but there are a couple of things that I really feel led by the Holy Spirit to review, sort of, or more, more, more develop. Uh, give you some more teaching or more information uh, about these things. And that's going to be really important because we're moving into chapter 12 and chapter 13. And you'll understand as we move into the, to these chapters, as we go through this, sometimes I need to take a few steps back and just lay some foundation uh, so there's a better understanding of what, of what we're reading. as we go. And hopefully, at least I personally hope, we'll get into chapter 12 tonight also. Kind of doubt we'll get through the whole thing, but hopefully we'll get into it. So look with me. Uh, the first thing is in Revelation 11, 8. And, and, and I'm going to kind of do them backwards for my own reasons, because I'm going to do verse 8 and then verse 7. But I'm going to start with verse 8, uh, where it says, and remember, it's talking about the two witnesses in Jerusalem. And it says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street. Remember the, the beast the Antichrist has killed them during this narrative. It says that their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Uh, so I'm going to talk about their bodies lying in the streets in just a minute. Um, and uh, when we look at verse 7, but I, want, I want to talk about this Sodom and Egypt for a few more minutes. We, we, we talked about this last week, but I just want to give you a better foundation of this. First of all, look over at Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16. If you've never read that before, or even if you've read it a hundred times, it might seem shocking to you that God would refer to Jerusalem as Sodom and Egypt. It's very important for us to understand what we started with last week, uh, the difference between Jerusalem below and Jerusalem above, and how Jerusalem on this earth is a shadow of the heavenly Jerusalem, of the new Jerusalem. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, just reading a few of these verses, you can read the whole thing in context later if you want. Uh, in verse 44, chapter 16, verse 44, it says, Behold, everyone, and this is speaking to Jerusalem, this is speaking to Judea. Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, Like mother, like daughter. So it's kind of like us saying the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? Like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and children. You are also the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Kittite and your father an Amorite. Now your older sister is Samaria, that's northern tribes of Israel, who lives north of you with her daughters, and your younger sister who lives south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Yet you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they, 
As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister, and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations. So the abominations part, that's the part you always think of when it comes to Sodom. Okay? The perversions, the homosexuality, the things that we read about in the story of Sodom. But God reveals that that began with pride. When the nation, because Sodom is a city-state, when the state, when the city became lifted up with pride because of their wealth. And you can see the same pattern in our nation today. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. So last week when we were talking about this, uh, we were talking about the, we talked some about the time of the Gentiles, and uh, that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then Israel would be grafted back in. We talked a little bit about how that fullness has actually already come in, or the last stages is coming in, and we're living right in the midst of those times. And we talked about how uh, you know like we didn't talk about this, but First Peter says that judgment begins in the house of God. And if you notice in the scripture, God's standard for judgment is always the same. And the standard that he applied to Israel, or the standard that he applied to Jerusalem, we should not read that and say that that only has to do with the Jews, of course. We should read that and say, then how much more will he judge us also as a nation, and judge us according to the same standard? So God calls Israel, or calls Jerusalem, Sodom. And then in Ezekiel chapter 23, in Ezekiel chapter 23 and verse 27, it says, Thus I will make your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt to cease from you, so that you will not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give you into the hand of those whom you hate, into the hand of those from whom you were alienated. They will deal with you in hatred, Take all your property and leave you naked and bare, and the nakedness of your harlotries will be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotries. And then it goes on, you can read it in the whole context. So Ezekiel is directly prophesying about, I will give you into the hand of Babylon, and that you will be destroyed, and that Egypt will be no help to you, because you are Egypt, because you brought your idolatries up from Egypt. You are Egypt. And we read in the story of the Exodus, the whole time they're complaining about, we want to go back to Egypt, we want to go back to Egypt, and then they make a golden calf uh, as the idolatry of, of Egypt. So it's a historical fact uh, in Israel, and it's a prophetic truth that applies to us today. So the statement made by Ezekiel is like mother, like daughter. So who is this mother that hated her husband and hated her children? Well, it's referring to Eve, okay? And it's referring to Eve in a spiritual, or it might say a metaphorical way, because I'm not, not saying that Eve hated Adam or hated Cain and Abel or Seth or whatever, you know, the Bible doesn't really make a comment on that, but she hated Adam in the sense that she came out from under his authority, and Adam hated her in the sense that he allowed her to do that, and then she gave the uh, fruit of the tree also to her husband. And so Eve is the mother. And this is developed in the New Testament in a lot of different places that I'm not going not to open up. 
but the development usually is along the lines of the first Adam and Jesus being the second Adam. And the first Adam brought death, and the second Adam brings life to us. So Eve is the mother. And uh, when we get to chapter 12, we're going to see that there's a new mother who's revealed, okay? And that the child, Jesus, will be born from this new mother with a new anointing, okay? So go with me over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. This is a place where Paul uses this metaphor, or this allegory as he calls it, he calls it an allegory, to describe the difference between Jerusalem that's below and Jerusalem that is above. So in Galatians chapter 4, um, beginning with verse 21, it says, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, so one of the mothers was a slave, and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman, that's Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. So Isaac, you know the story, Isaac was born according to the promise, or you might say according to the spirit. It was a work that God did through their faith when they trusted God. And Ishmael was born according to the flesh. It was a work that they did to try to make God's promises come true because they were afraid that they would not. And then it says in verse 24, this is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves, and she is Hagar. So Hagar, she's the slave or the servant of Sarah. She's the one who Sarah gave to Abraham, and they had a son together named Ishmael, right? You all know that story. But maybe what you don't know is that Hagar is an Egyptian. She's from Egypt. And so Paul, by the Holy Spirit, takes this as an allegory, um, which is, is a very valid thing to do with Scripture. There's a story there, and then we apply it to our lives. How does that apply to our lives? So he takes this as an allegory by the Holy Spirit and says that she came from Mount Sinai. Now, if you look at a map today, Mount Sinai, they're going to try to show you that it's in Saudi Arabia, but that's not really true. There's a lot of archaeological evidence, and the Bible makes it very clear that it's actually in the, um, uh, in, uh, uh, in the Arabian, not in the big Saudi Arabia, but in the little Sinai Peninsula area. It's in what it used to be Egypt, okay? So Mount Sinai pertains to Egypt in the scripture, okay? And when they came to Mount Sinai, the law was given on Mount Sinai. And he says that these women are two covenants. One covenant is the old covenant. It proceeds from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. Okay, this is really powerful teaching. It says that she is Hagar. Now this Hagar is, he says she is Mount Sinai, because it's an allegory, in Arabia, and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now remember at Sinai, not only did God give the law, because if you follow Paul's teachings in Romans and other place, places, he makes it clear that the law is holy, the law is just, he doesn't have anything against the law, but the law has been given as a tutor to teach us and lead us to Christ. The law has been given to condemn everybody. The law comes and it proves to every single one of us that we're just as bad a sinner as anybody else. 
and we have no justification. And so that law leads us to Christ. But that's not the only thing that happened at Sinai. Also at Sinai is where they made the golden calf. Okay? So it's a place of birthing something by the flesh. And he says, this corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. That's just as true today as it was when Paul wrote it. It's changing, but it's just as true today. If you listen to some of these Jewish Christians that are evangelists and are really working in Israel, they're Israeli citizens, and they, uh, their birth language is Hebrew, and they're preaching the gospel, you know, they, they will tell you that they are severely persecuted by Pharisees, by rabbis who are Pharisees to the point of death threat threats, having to move from apartment to apartment because of fear that they'll be found out, to the point of losing their jobs, you know, because it's against the law for them to convert to Christianity. Did you know that? I mean, it's against the law to proselyte people, let me put it that way, in, in Israel. So they risk their lives to this day. But that's changing, and it will change in these last days. She's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother. So there's a Jerusalem above. We'll get to that eventually in the, in the book of Revelation. It is the new Jerusalem. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, for you are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. And then you could read on. From there. So there's a Jerusalem that is below, and this is a bondwoman, a slave. It's a work of the flesh trying to attain to the Jerusalem that is above. And so there are three women in the Old Testament that correspond to this. There's Eve, and then there's, we see that in Ezekiel. Then there's Hagar, we see this here in Galatians. And then we could also compare it to Leah the first wife of Jacob, or the first wife of Israel. She's the wife of the flesh. She's the wife of the deception. Remember how Jacob was deceived and tricked into marrying her, and when he looked up the family, it was like, oh, what have I done? I've just married Leah, not Rachel. But then there's Jerusalem that is above, and she is a free woman. She is born, we are born of the promise, born of the spirit, not born of the flesh. And this corresponds to Sarah, and it especially corresponds to Rachel, and we'll see that when we get to Revelation chapter 12, and, and it especially, especially corresponds to Mary, and we will see that when we get to Revelation chapter 12. That's, that means that this is our mother. This is our mother. I know this sounds really super Catholic, but the church is our mother. The church from above, the new Jerusalem, is our mother. And that mother has been exemplified in the flesh by different women, and especially by Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. And we'll see that when we get to Revelation chapter 12, the daughter of Zion. Okay, so just kind of tuck that away and go with me to chapter 11 of Revelation. Again, let's look at verse 7, because this is a completely different topic, but all this is important to have as we go forward. Um, verse 7. It says, when they have finished their testimony, the two uh, have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. Okay. 
I want to talk about that in a little bit more detail. We began this last week, but I'm going to give you some more detail. First of all, look at Psalm 79. Psalm 79. Psalm 79, verse 1. It's a psalm that speaks prophetically of this, but it was first fulfilled by Nebuchadnezzar because this is what Nebuchadnezzar did, okay? It says, oh God, the nations, the, the Babylonians did. Not in the beginning, and Nebuchadnezzar didn't set out to do this, by the way. Uh, this happened because they would not listen to Jeremiah and they would not listen to the word of the Lord. He actually left many of them in Jerusalem and was not going to destroy the city, but eventually he did. And it says, oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. So you can see that that prophetically speaking of what we read about in Revelation chapter 11, that their bodies will be left in the street. The whole world will see that. They will mock them, and there will be no one there to bury them. So who does this? It says that this is done by the beast that comes up out of the abyss. As we move forward in Revelation, we're going to be talking about this beast a lot, so I want to give you some foundation here. Look with me at Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. So it says here, the beast comes up out of the abyss. In Revelation 13, 1, it said, that the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, uh, and I'll talk about the ten horns and seven heads later if we get to it. So we see that the beast comes out of the abyss, and the beast comes up out of the sea. And these are actually not two different things. Uh, the word abyss in the Greek is abyss, abyssos. And it means, it's just a Greek word transliterated to English, and it means something that's bottomless. But they, it also means something that's unfathomed. The sea to this day, with all our modern technology, it still remains a mystery. It's still unfathomed for us. And um, so in ancient times, they would refer to the sea as the abyss. You've probably read some stories where they cast somebody into the abyss and they threw them into the water. Uh, so it referred to uh, not only that, but it referred to the place of the dead, okay? Or we just say hell or, or Hades. And we've talked about these different compartments of the underworld. So both of these are referring to the beast coming up out of uh, the underworld, coming up out of hell, as we would just say. Okay, um, And yet the beast, we'll also see, is actually a human. And uh, humans aren't born in hell and they come up out of hell. But this is the spirit and the man and the empire or the kingdom that he is behind. And all these things we're going to begin to see in Revelation chapter 12, they're all just puppets, really, that are being uh, directed by Satan himself, okay? So uh, Revelation chapter 12 is actually a really cool chapter because it just lays out all the main characters, it gives us the protagonist, it gives us the antagonist, it's a, it's a view behind the scenes to see what's really happening in the realm of the spirit. Something very important to remember, something the Lord reminded me of this last week. I was praying about the things going on in the world. I don't know if you know this, how closely you follow all the news, 
we, we follow the news very closely in Ukraine with Russia for obvious reasons. Uh, but you know, the, the world actually is on the brink of World War III, or it's already started. The Pope not that long ago said World War III's already started. Well, I'm not saying the Pope's right, but somebody big is already saying stuff like that. And I was praying about that, and you know when I was praying, the Lord said to me these words. He says, it's not World War III, or it's not a world war, it's a war of the worlds. Everything you see happening on the earth is but a shadow or a mirror image of what's happening in the heavens. And there is a heavenly battle going on right now. And it's what we read about in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 shows us what's really happening in the heavens, what's really happening behind the scenes, and why Satan is doing the things that he's doing. And the things on the earth are merely a shadow or a picture of those things that, that are in heaven. And we, you know, need to understand these things when we pray. And we need to be praying. We really need to be praying and standing on the Word of God uh, because things can go in a lot of different directions and they need to go in the direction that God wants them to go in. We see this spiritual battle in Daniel. And, uh, you know, Daniel's, a, Daniel's attitude is not just, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. I don't really have to pray about it or I'll just say a little hallelujah here and and it'll all be done. Uh, no, he fasts and prays for 21 days to get a breakthrough. And when he gets that breakthrough, he doesn't stop praying uh, because it's revealed to him that there's a war going on in heaven. And it's between uh, the prince of Persia and your prince, who is Michael, and now the prince of Greece is coming. There's a battle that's going on in heaven. We need to stand in prayer. I don't know if, if you pay attention to the news, but one of the biggest things that's two huge things that are happening right now, I would say three huge things that are happening right now. One of them is happening in the little country of Lithuania. And if you're not real familiar with European geography, go look at a map. But there's a little tiny, on the map, it's not tiny in real life, but a little tiny part of Russia called Kaliningrad. And it used to be called Konigsberg. It used to be a part of Prussia, the headquarters of Prussia. And after World War II, it was a part of the spoils that the Soviet Union came. So it's a very important city to Russia. It would be no different than Alaska to us or Hawaii to us. It is not connected to the, uh, to the main part. Of, it's not connected to Russia. It's an enclave. It's separated uh, by, by land. And so in all the years since the fall of the Soviet Union, there has always been an on paper agreement, a treaty between Lithuania and Russia that Lithuania would never for any reason uh, uh, close the corridor for, uh, or set up a blockade for Kaliningrad. Well, now Lithuania has done that just this last week. They said, well, since Brussels told us that you're not allowed to bring coal or building materials and this whole list of things because of sanctions into Europe, that means Brussels has now told us that we're, which probably means America told Brussels, that you're not allowed to bring that stuff through by corridor to your city there in Kaliningrad. Well, America has already gone to war for that many times in our history. I mean, on the face of it, we got into World War, there's other reasons, but we got into World War II because Japan bombed Hawaii which wasn't even a state in the United States. It was our territory. 
you know, because of blockades, those things cause war. And the, the rhetoric is getting really strong right now. And it's very, a very realistic scenario that Lithuania will pay a price for this, and they will. And the people there will suffer. But if they do, they're a NATO country. If things don't change, we need to pray for things to change, for cooler heads to prevail, and for them to not do that, not allow it to spill over into a conflict between uh, NATO and China, Russia, and whatever. Because then you got World War all the way out, okay? And then in Israel, I don't know if you know what's happening in Israel, but the government has been dissolved in Israel. They don't have a prime minister now. And they won't have a prime minister until October when the elections happen. And it's been dissolved. The prime minister himself dissolved his own government because nobody trusts him. And uh, Netanyahu's knocking on the door to come back. And uh, if you read up on that. But the most interesting part about it to me is for the first time since 1967, for the first time since 1967, they're using, they're using Jerusalem, what's called the West Bank. That's just Jerusalem. Bible Jerusalem is the West Bank. They're using Jerusalem as a pawn in their political games. And as of today, they have not renewed the uh, law. They have to renew this law that would allow those people who live in Jerusalem to have all the same rights, privileges, and protections as, as the rest of the Israeli citizens, okay? And that's scary because it comes to a place where you're willing to trade Jerusalem for peace and it leads to a place which is gonna happen eventually, but when it's gonna happen, I don't know, when Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles for 1,260 days, as we've read and will read again. So there's a lot of things happening in the world today. It could very well be that this beast already came out of the abyss. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what's happening. We don't see everything that's happened in the spirit. But, you know, if it smells like a beast, it probably is a beast. And I smell beasts all over the world right now. And so, I mean, these things are happening before our very eyes. So it comes up out of the abyss. Look at chapter 17 and verse 8. Chapter 17 and verse 8. Hey, just getting way fast. Uh, chapter 17, verse 8. It says, uh, we're going to teach much more extensively on this when we get to chapter 17. But the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and then he will go to destruction. And so what we know about the beast is that he was, he is not, and he will be. Okay. So when John wrote this, the, there, all these different empires are beasts, okay, in the, in the book of Daniel. And when John wrote this, there was a beast in power over the world, and that beast is Rome. And he said, the beast that's coming, the one that you're reading about in chapter 11, he was before Rome, that he is not right now, that he will come back again. And I'm telling you, there's only one of those beasts that can fit into that category, and that is the Prince of Greece. I mean, time will tell, but it is the Prince of Greece. And why do I say that? Because in Daniel, the Prince of Persia, to the Prince of Persia appertained, you know, everything that came before, all of the East, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Persia itself. The Prince of Persia was defeated, okay? But he said, and now the Prince of Greece is coming. And we've been living in the era of the Prince of Greece ever since 
Alexander conquered the world. We still live in that era because if you know anything about history, even you know fourth grade, whenever you went through some of that world history stuff, you know that all of Rome's gods, all of their culture, everything came, they just borrowed it from Greece. And that continues to this day. So let me talk about that for just a little bit. He was, he is not, he is about to come. Uh, in Daniel 10, 20, Daniel 10, 20 says, Behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Okay, so there are two parts of Greece that are important to understand uh, that influence us today. The one part would be the religion, the culture, and the language of Greece. Now, not very many people speak Greek today. They do. It is still a living language. Uh, but the entire New Testament was written in Greek, and all the classics were written in Greek, and it's very influential in our culture today. We have thousands of words in the English language that come from Greek. So there's this whole thing that has to do with culture, the religion, the culture, the language of Greece. The religion of Greece lives on in a lot of ways because when Christianity came, if you've ever been in a Greek Orthodox uh, church or Roman uh, Russian Orthodox Church or any of the Greek Orthodox things, it's very Byzantine. It's very Greek. <laughs> it's very different from anything that we have on this side. So there's there's that. But there's a that that religion, culture, and language, they uh, lived on throughout the Roman Empire completely. On past the time of Jesus, they lived on into the uh, Ottoman Empire. Uh, the Dome of the Rock that stands on the Temple Mount today is a Byzantine structure. It's a Greek structure. It looks like Greek. It smells like Greek. And it just incorporated some places Greece incorporated Jesus. Sometimes they incorporated Muhammad. And I'm not saying the people that uh, incorporated Jesus weren't real Christians, but they kept this culture. Okay? They kept this style. They kept this thing. There's something different about the East and the West. And, you know, you could just go to Russia, Gordon went to Russia, you could just, I mean, walk, just get off the plane. You just realize something's different here. It's kind of the same, but it's completely different. There's a big difference. You could cross the border between Russia and uh, Norway, and it's like, you know, it's two miles, but it's a completely different world. Things are just different between West and East. As I told you, both West and East that we're referring to here are both the Roman Empire. It's just... Rome and Constantinople, okay? And the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire, but they're both the Roman Empire. But there's one other thing, and I want to just talk about this just to challenge you to think about these things. Uh, there's one other part of Greece that has a huge influence on us today that's different from their culture, and it's their political structure, okay? It's called democracy, okay? Um, and democracy as a political structure began in Athens, and Athens is Greece. But the democracy that Athens had, it didn't live for very long. And when Alexander came, this prince of Greece, when Alexander came, democracy ended completely. It was already in its death rose, and that gave rise to Alexander. Alexander arose because of the democracy. We say today in America that we have a democracy. I don't know how many of you remember what you learned in school, but most of you are as old as I am, or older, or almost as old as I am, and when you went to school, I know they taught you that we don't have a democracy. 
that we have a republic, because that's what they used to say. But more and more over the past 20 years, all I hear is democracy, democracy, democracy. Okay? But we do not have a constitution that's democratic. It's not designed to be democratic. That's why when we vote for the president, we don't really vote for the president, we vote for the electors. And supposedly these are wise men, now women, who go and choose the president. You know, the whole idea was a great idea, but it basically doesn't exist anymore. We don't even know if when we vote it even gets counted anymore. <laughs> but, it, but it did exist at, at one time. So the so-called American democracy was not, this is important for you to understand, it was not modeled after Greece, okay? You can study the Federalists, you can read things that Adams, that Jefferson, things that they wrote, they did not model it after Greece. They modeled it after Rome, after the Republic in Rome. And it was a, it was a democratic in a sense that you did vote and choose people, but you chose senators, you chose wise men, powerful men who would make all the decisions for you. Okay, that's how they modeled. Um, today, people think that democracy is a great thing. There was a time when people in America did not think that. If you'll allow me, I'm just gonna read some quotes to you, okay? This, you can find this online. This is uh, John Adams. It's his letter to John Taylor. You can just type in John Adams, John Taylor, you can find this. December 17, 1814, and this is just a little part of it. Because this is John Adams' attitude toward democracy. He's talking about the democracy in France, okay? The French Revolution. He says, I do not say that democracy has been more pernicious, that means evil, on the whole and in the long run than monarchy or aristocracy. Democracy, aristocracy is what we call a system run by oligarchs today. Democracy has never been and never can be so durable. Listen, democracy has never been and never can be so durable as aristocracy or monarchy. But while it lasts, it, democracy, is more bloody than either of those. This is John Adams. Remember, democracy never lasts long. But we didn't have a democracy, okay? We had a republic, and he that's what he believed. Remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. What does it say about this beast that will come? He's only got 1,260 days, three and a half years. He will come and he must stay for a little while, but then he will be gone and he will go to destruction. Democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. This is John Adams. Then he goes into Greece. The Athenians, Athens, grew more and more warlike in proportion as the commonwealth became more democratic. I need not enumerate to you the foolish wars into which the people forced their wisest men and ablest generals against their own judgments. Could they, they could be written about America today. By which the state was finally ruined, bankrupt, didn't have any weapons left. <laughs> And Philip and Alexander became their masters, the rise of Alexander the Great. What can I say of the democracy of France? Which this was happening right at this time, Napoleon. I dare not write what I think and what I know. What was the ambition of this democracy? Nothing less than to propagate itself, remember that, its principles, its systems through the world. 
to decapitate all the kings, that's called regime change today, destroy all the nobles and the priests in Europe. Real philosophers and sincere Christians in amazing numbers over all Europe and America were hurried away by the torrent of contagious enthusiasm. Democracy, the enthusiasm of democracy in France. Democracy is chargeable with all the blood that has been spilled for five and 20 years. Napoleon and all his generals were but creatures of democracy. This democratic hurricane, inundation, earthquake, pestilence, call it which you will, at last aroused and alarmed all the world and produced a combination unexampled to prevent its further progress, in other words, the fall of Napoleon. And he thought it was done with that. You have to understand, nobody thought we lived in a democracy up until very, very modern times. In the 21st century, a lot of things have changed. A lot of things have come to fruition. And you know, you can trace this stuff back and you can see the seeds of this everywhere, but, but things have come to fruition. Uh, we began in the 21st century to hear about democracy all the time. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember when Bush was president, the second Bush, Bush, not the first Bush, that all we were hearing about was spreading democracy around the world. And this word democracy, I'm not saying it's a bad word, but it's not the system of government that we have in our Constitution. It's not a system of government that has ever succeeded in anything. Ask the Poles. It's why Poland never became a great power, because they had a democracy amongst their richest princes, and they could never agree on anything. And if one person vetoed it, no uh, decision was ever made. And so they just kept getting run over by Germans and by Russians and by Germans and by Russians because it just does not work. The majority rule that can be called the mob rule doesn't work anywhere. It never worked in any of your homes, did it? Did you ask your kids to vote on whether they got to have ice cream or not have ice cream, whether they got more screen time on their computers or whatever or not? You don't ask kids to vote on stuff. You just you you let them take part as they grow older and you know voice things and explain to you their reasoning. But the final decision is, is with you. A family is not a democracy. It never has been. A church isn't designed to be a democracy. That's why there are bishops. You know, are called the you know in the New Testament presbyters, the elders, bishops, things like that. And and it's and 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 so when democracy comes in the 21st century. So think of this. Democracy never existed anywhere since the fall of Athens or since Alexander the Great. But since the beginning of the 21st century, that's all we talk about. There's a thing, you can look this up online, called the Bush Doctrine. Okay? And it begins with something called unilateralism, that America is going to make its own decisions no matter what anybody else does. And we pulled out of nuclear arms treaties, we pulled out of all kinds of things. And then 9-11 happened. And what happened after 9-11? You know that you remember this, but I remember it very well. People were ready to give up all their freedoms just to be safe. People were so afraid. I remember after 9-11, you can't even get on an airplane anymore. They took my toothpaste away, I remember. They took everything away from you. You know, it's gotten better now. It's calmed down a little bit. Everybody's learned the rules, but it changed everything. COVID's changed everything. These, 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 uh, extreme panic situations happen, and then we give up our freedoms, we give up our rights, and it's all done in the name of democracy. So the war on terror starts. It's all part of the Bush doctrine. 
which was basically uh, Bush himself said that if you are not with us, that you are with the terrorists and you are against us. And that's how the war on terror was was uh, started. But all these things continue. They're started as, you know, it's like a turnpike in Oklahoma. My dad always hated those turnpikes. You gotta pay money to drive around Oklahoma everywhere. They said when they built it, they said that they were going to take money for five years. But then they can't ever stop taking money. They just keep taking money. These things start, they never go away. And then we have Iraq. And there comes this part of what's literally, politically referred to as the Bush Doctrine that's called a preemptive war and regime change. We have it happening in Ukraine, we have it happening in Georgia, we have it happening in Libya. Whatever you think, whether it's good or bad, you know, we have Saddam Hussein hanged. We have, and, and at the time, I thought that was great. Why Saddam Hussein got hanged? No, there was something, why? Was it great or not? I don't really know anything anymore. What's going on? All I know is that we're just going around the world hanging everybody and telling everybody how they have to live. Okay? And, and ultimately, the Bush Doctrine, what it is, is this idea, and I know you've heard this, and it's never gone away. It began then. But it's this idea that God's mission for the United States of America is to spread democracy around the world. It used to be an idea of spreading the gospel. The idea now is to spread democracy around the world. So we have a rise of democracy in the 21st century that we don't remember. It did not used to exist. And then it became even stronger. And I remember this so clearly. When Obama became president, the entire, the first time in history, social media is used to completely manipulate the way people think. Do you remember that? Maybe you weren't really into social media, but it was a powerful thing. And I remember laughing about that. Oh yeah, he's gonna win with social media. What's this dumb little Twitter thing? I mean, the name itself is so stupid. Twitter, I don't want to eat something. But suddenly it becomes like the most powerful thing on the planet. And everybody's minds are shaped and manipulated by that. And now we actually have what people think is a democracy. We actually have this system where people think that if I vote, then, you know, whatever the majority want, that's what we should have. People think today, let me give you an example. They think today that because the majority of Americans want to have legalized abortion, and I don't even know if they do, but the polls say, well, polls can be manipulated however you want them to go, but the polls say, let's say that that's true. Just because the majority, do you understand? Just because the majority want to have legalized abortion doesn't mean that the majority should get legalized abortion. It doesn't matter what the majority wants. What matters is what's legal. Right? You know, and we've gotten to this place where we believe that if the majority wants something, that they automatically have to have that. Well, that's not what our founding fathers thought in this country. And I'm not saying all this to say something about America so much. Although it's important for us to understand this, we're praying this morning, the Lord's really been put on my heart, just really been put in on my heart, that it says in the Word that if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves, and then it goes on from there, right? But that, just that first thing, will humble themselves. As a nation, I've been praying, I keep getting this in my heart, God, don't let us go to the point that we have to be broken completely. At what point do we stop and humble ourselves and stop trying to fix all the world's problems, 
stop trying to do everything for everybody, you know, stop trying to keep everybody happy, and think about what makes God happy. I mean, can you imagine, uh, could you ever imagine that in this country, somebody, praise God, that was averted, but somebody would go with a gun to the address of Brett Kavanaugh, a Supreme Court justice, whose address was made public, and members of the Senate were happy about that, and ask people to go protest at their house, and he would go there to kill the Supreme Court justice. And what, what have we come to? You know what I'm saying? And, and that's called democracy, okay? That's called democracy, and that's where democracy goes. So there is this prince of Greece that is arising. All this stuff I'm saying to you, if you just kind of table it or you know, hold it in there as we're going through this stuff about the Antichrist, you're going to see that this is what he arises from. He is a popular leader, okay? He's not somebody that forces himself upon everybody. He's somebody that's going to be elected. He's somebody that's going to be chosen. He's somebody that people are going to love and they're going to think that he'll save the world. And we're not very far away from that kind of mob rule today. So don't want to bore you, but let me go one more thing with this. I always promise I'd never quote Plato in a sermon because my pastor growing up always quoted Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle, people like that. But I've got to quote Plato. So Plato, if you don't know who that is, it's not Plato, Plato. Look it up online. Greek, Greek, right? Greek philosopher, the great Greek philosopher. And he wrote, a, he wrote a book we call today called Republic, Plato's Republic. And in that book, he writes a lot about democracy. And he's having a discussion with Socrates, going back and forth. Socrates, by the way, was murdered, put to death by a democratic vote because he didn't say this, because Socrates wouldn't say the things that the government wanted him to say. Actually, they allowed him to commit suicide. But he was put to death. They voted and said he has to be killed because he doesn't say the right things. But uh, anyway, Plato's Republic. Here's a quote from that. He says, this is in, in the height of Athens' democracy. What is democracy? It seems then that tyranny establishes itself out of no other political form than democracy. From the height of liberty, I suppose, comes servitude or slavery of the most extreme and brutal nature. It's very much like what John Adams said, because Adams would have studied this. And then Plato, he goes on, I'll give you all the quotes, but he, he, he designates three classes in democracy, okay? We still have them to this day. We didn't have them, but we've got them now. Listen to the end of this. Number one, there are the idle leaders. The leaders end up just being idle, doing nothing. That's exactly what we have to then number two, the second class are the capitalist or the middle class. And then number three are the mass of people who own little or no property. Okay? Um, you know, uh, and, and then he says the next stage is that uh, the idle leaders, they will understand that the people, because the people vote in a democracy, they will only vote the way the leaders want if the leaders take away what 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 uh, Plato called the honey, he means the money, <laughs> take, take away stuff from the middle class and give it to the mass of the people, okay? And then if they'll share with the people, 
by their votes, basically. They'll vote the way the idol leaders want them to vote. But then the middle class will fight with the leaders to keep what they own, and then the leaders will demonize the middle class to the lower class. And then the middle class will collapse, and what will happen is all the middle class will sink down into the lower class. And a few of them, just a few of them will rise up and they'll be oligarchs that are very powerful and rich, and they'll work together with the leaders to make everything happen. But then the lower class will be so disgruntled that he says this. It says, and then, this sounds like something about America today, and then there ensued impeachments and judgments and lawsuits on all sides. And it is not always the way of a democratic assembly to put forward, and is it not always the way of a democratic assembly to put forward one man as its special champion and protector and cherish and magnify him? Whenever a tyrant arises, he always arises from a protectorate root. In other words, because people are afraid and need somebody to protect them. Not from anything else does he sprout. And so we see that it's very, uh, it's, it's a very contemporary and a very realistic scenario that when this beast arises and he has already risen, that people will give their votes to a champion who will make things right, who will save them. I, you know, if I want to say God bless President Biden, I don't know if I'd say that, forgive me, boy. But if he continues on this path, this administration continues on this path, and they are allowed to continue on this path for another two and a half years, we might already be sunk so low that we would take anybody that could get us out of that. And that's a very dangerous place. And as Christians, where we need to hang on to Jesus and never, never let go of him. So I've run out of time, so we didn't get to chapter 12. But to make this end on a good note, I want to read chapter 11, verse, beginning with verse 15. Just read through this. We already talked about this last week. But it says, then, and then, after all this stuff happens, all this stuff has gone on, after the sixth trumpet, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was open, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So that's the seventh trumpet. It comes. And then we go to chapter 12. I just asked you this week to read chapter 12. We'll definitely get through all of chapter 12 next week. It's kind of my favorite chapter in Revelation. Bible. It's just so simple, so easy to understand. Um, but it reveals to us, like I said, what's going on really in the heavens, the battle that is happening right now. And we so need to understand that today in the world that we live in, so that we're, we understand that our battle is not the flesh and blood, that there is a spiritual battle that is going on. 
So the second woe ends after the 1260 days. But you'll remember that there were 1290 days in Daniel. So that means there are 30 more days left after the second woe. And I'm just going to take it as an exact number because there's no reason not to take it as an exact number. And those 30 days are left for the seven bulls of God's wrath that will be poured out on the earth. But those bulls will be poured out by God. There won't be anything that Satan's doing. It's what God's doing to bring the final cleansing, the final judgment of the earth. And then, we talked about this already, perhaps there's another 45 days, because Daniel talks about 1,335 days. And I don't know what those are for, but I have a suspicion that those are for the judgment of the nations when Jesus comes back, the division between the sheep and the goats, and maybe I'll get some more revelation on that sometime. Um, let me just end by reading, not opening the Bible, just reminding you uh, from these, these verses in the Bible. Because this is the time of the coming of the Lord. And I think I've already nailed this down for you. I really want you to know and understand that when I talk about the rapture not happening seven years before the end, I, I'm not saying that to make anybody scared or to make anybody confused. It's just what the Bible very plainly teaches. It's so obvious that this seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. And in Matthew chapter 24, Verse 29, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days. He did not say immediately before the tribulation of those days. He didn't say immediately during. He said immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the 1260 days, after the prince of Greece, the prince that comes up, the beast that comes from the abyss has run his course, and all this stuff we've been talking about today is done. After that, when God blows the whistle and says, that's it for you, the time's up, after the tribulation of those days, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, Jesus said, it's the seventh trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, what we call the rapture, from one end of the sky to the other. And then Paul wrote, based on that, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. As we see with those two witnesses, they rise from the dead and they're caught up into the clouds. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 says, at the last trumpet, at the last trumpet. So we've come to the last trumpet, and this is the rapture event, if we want to use that word. This is the great catching away that is preceded by the first resurrection. Revelation 20, verse 4. Remember what I told you when we started in Revelation, that you can't just force some kind of chronology onto the book that it doesn't give to you. Because having come to the seventh trumpet, now in chapter 12, God's going to take us all the way back to before the creation of man. And we're going to see pictures of Satan being cast out of heaven and taking a third of the angels with him. We're going to talk about these things. But it's, like a, it's just like a really intricate play or a movie you know, you have to just follow along, and sometimes you don't really get what's happening in that movie, and the director doesn't want you to get it until a certain point, and then it hits home so much harder because you really get it now because the groundwork's been laid for that. That's what we're going into in these next coming chapters, and they're really interesting. So I hope that you can keep uh, uh, some, of that, some of what I've given you tonight. Um, 
I was just praying about it. I really felt like I need to lay that groundwork for you. Really need to understand, you know, when I was a kid growing up and I hear prophecy teachers, they would always say, they would always say, so I just thought this for the longest time, that there's nothing in Bible prophecy about America. There is about every other country, but not about America. Not about the New World, you know, North America, South America, and those kinds of things. And, and I want to tell you, that is completely false. Okay? When we get to chapter 17, and we read about the what's called there, sorry, but the Whore of Babylon, you're, you're going to see Europe, you're going to see America, you're going to see the whole world that we live in today. I think people used to say that because we hadn't gotten to the place where we are now. And it was hard to understand that that could ever happen. I could never imagine we would live in the America we live in today. But that's why we need to pray for America. Because this is not the end for our country. In fact, let's just stand together and pray right now. Father, just pray for our nation right now, Lord. Just see this Prince of Greece, as he's called in Daniel, this beast, as he's called in uh, the book of Revelation. And I don't attach that name to any president, not to Bush, Obama, Trump, or Biden, or anybody else, Lord. But I know that there is a spirit, because our battle is not the flesh and blood, and that there is a spiritual battle, Lord, that is raging today. And there are people on this earth who, whether they whether they want to do it or not, some of them, their hand is just forced and they don't really make the right choices. Others of them, they're diabolical. They have evil plans. They want to agree with those satanic forces. Uh, but for what are their motives, Lord? We're just, it's like we're in a runaway train and we're just going down the tracks and nothing can stop, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that your people there's so many people that love you in this in this country. There are so many people, Lord. And like Adams wrote about the French Revolution, at that time, so many Christians had been deceived. And they thought that what was happening in France was good because they didn't really know what was going on there. They didn't really know about what was really happening there, Lord. And so many of us, Lord, our eyes have been closed and Satan's worked so hard to deceive us. And I pray that you would break the deception. You would remove the blinders from the eyes of, of your churches and from the angels of those churches, Lord. And that we would return to our first love. We would really humble ourselves before you, Lord. And we would say, Lord, uh, make, your, make your name great in this nation. Don't make us great, Lord. But make your name great. As it says in the Psalms, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory, Lord. And that we would turn back to you with all of our heart, Lord. That there could be at least one more chance for America. Because today it's looking like we're really close to losing everything. And I've never said that in my life, Lord, but it really looks like that today. And it's a little bit scary. It really is, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that we would just trust in you humble ourselves before you, Lord. And that it would just be just a wave. It wouldn't be led by some great televangelist or great leader or something, Lord, because we've just had enough of that, Lord. It would just be a wave of, of repentance, uh, just going through uh, churches and through people's lives. And we would be talking to people that live in other states and other places and be hearing the same things that the Holy Spirit is telling us, Lord. And that it just... As a grassroots movement, 
really from heaven, beginning from heaven, that we would turn back to you, Lord, as a country, as a nation. I ask you that, Lord. I pray for that in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would protect us and not allow us, Lord, if it be thy will, <laughs> lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one, Lord. I know all these things have to happen on the earth, but I also know, Lord, that there are so many, even in this country, who have still never heard, really heard the gospel, and really heard the gospel. And Lord, I just pray that, that you would give us an opportunity, just give us a little bit more time, Lord. Not that we can just do more evil. Lord, Moses prayed that you would change your mind, Abraham prayed that you change your mind, Lord. I just ask you that you would find in all of your wisdom that you would find some way to allow there to be a spirit of humility in this nation before we go too far, Lord. That people could still be saved. You care about the precious fruit of this ground, Lord. And that people could be saved Lord, today. I pray that as a church there would be nothing that would consume us more and doing the work of an evangelist and preaching the gospel and just just like was prayed tonight, Lord, you pour out your spirit on us, Lord, that there would be signs and wonders that follow the word of God, Lord, not just here in the building, and let them be here in the building, Lord, but out there in the streets, you know, out there, Lord, that there would be signs and wonders, there would be prophetic words, that there would just be words of wisdom, words of knowledge, things that would arrest this, this, uh, this nation's attention, that would just arrest the attention of people in this city and in this place and call them, Lord, to repentance. This real repentance. Just turning back to you, Lord. Pray for that in Jesus' name. And I thank you for that, Lord. Just ask you for that, Lord. If there be, as Abraham said, even ten righteous people in the earth, and I pray that you would spare Yarrington and give us another chance. Yes. So there would be, Lord, even ten righteous people in Washington, D.C. And there has to be at least ten. Surely, if there's ten righteous people in Washington, D.C., that you would give us a little bit more time before these things come upon the earth that are coming, Lord. Personally, I'd be really happy just to go be with you now for you to come back today. Because I get... I think we all are really tired of all this stuff. And we want to live in your kingdom. And Lord, we're not here for our personal welfare. We're here for your welfare and the welfare of your kingdom. And I believe that there are still people who have been called into the kingdom of God. And you want to see them in the kingdom of God. And I know that there's still growth left, left for us. There are things that we need to learn, things that we need to know, things that we need to see so that we will really be ready. I don't think we're really ready for that time of the great tribulation. Lord, I don't think your churches are really ready for that. So write us a letter, Lord. Tell us where we need to repent. Give us the warnings like you do at Revelation, Lord. And turn us back to our first law. And turn us back to you, Lord. Give us that opportunity, just as we read in the book of Revelation. I ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvinyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.